0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 89, and it's the first years of the 1820s. We we're partly in Zululand. By now, shaka began concentrating his power in the area around Malabatini to Tukulusini, which is an area just north of the White Mfulosi River. And that's north of the town of Ulundi today. After Zwide of the Ndwandwe was chased away, Sharka began developing a dense cluster of Imizi in Matlabatini under Mama, who was in Kabai's twin sister and the largest of these was Osobeni near Llazachi Mountain. Most, however, were previously Tetwa homesteads, including Kwakandisa, Kwaguku, Mdadaza, and Nomdayana. I mentioned last episode that we now need to attend to, to various myths about Shaka's sexuality. Most of these salacious myths are indeed myths, and I'll explain why. Some suggest he was gay, others that he couldn't have sex, he was somehow disabled. We must attend to this part of the story because a whole phalanx of myth-making has developed based on these misconceptions. Most Zulu oral storytellers and written evidence say that Shaka had no children. I'm going to explain why. He had an izigodlo of several hundred women, yet never had a child. How come? He was not unattractive, say the prose poets and the traders who met him. He was well-built. Well-muscled and looked powerful, he wasn't overweight, he was well-proportioned of medium height. Some malicious folks, particularly writers of Zulu war fiction, suggest he was sterile, if not impotent, or even homosexual, or all of the above. But the reality is that Shaka did not wish to have children. That's what Quechuaio told the British later. Dingan, who murdered Shaka, didn't have children either. You see, both feared the consequences of raising a male heir inside an insidiously violent military culture. These children are usurpers and competitors. Mpande, the king of the Zulu after Dingan, was forced to share power with his son, a man called Kachwayo. It was known, for example, that Shaka slept with four of his wives at the same time, two on either side of him, one at his head and one at his feet. He apparently enjoyed them but didn't impregnate them there are many ways to achieve gratification they say and he was known to enjoy gratification he's also known to have partaken of which is external sexual intercourse it's what had got his father in such trouble with him since angakona was supposed to Nandi, but things went out of control Sharka was known to have many isi or lovers Unfortunately, he was also known to have raped women while a youngster fighting for Dingswayo. He was never punished for the attacks. He is also reported to have made a mistake in his ukutlobonga and did actually have a single son called Zibizenlela. The youngster escaped and survived in exile, it is said. Once he was a king and if any of the women he slept with somehow became pregnant, traders such as Andrew Smith alleged that he ordered them to have an abortion if that abortion failed, the woman was killed. One of the oral storytellers by the name of Sutkowatcha confirmed this later, but Charles McLean, who lived with Shaka, tells another story, that any concubine he impregnated, any umlunkulu or isikila who became pregnant, was sent away to live in obscurity in a distant homestead. The banished women could keep their children, but they could not say they were of royal blood or they'll all be killed. With that slightly sensitive section out of the way, emerging around now was a fascinating man, Mapita Sojiyiza. Described as stubby, dark, and shiny black by Zulu oral historians, he was from the Mantlakazi lineage, very close to the Zulu chiefly family. But he was the son of a foundling called Ngwabi, who had been adopted into the Zulu royal family and adopted a Zulu name. Mapita's mum Ngwabi had died while Sojiyiza was still in the womb. He was somehow saved and then raised by mhlaba of royal lineage. Later, this would be argued that Mapita actually wasn't a royal member, but let's continue the story. You see, Shaka appointed Mapita to run the southern half of Zwides and Dwanwe territory now that he'd headed off north to escape the Zulu king's clutches. Mapita controlled the region northeast of the Umfolozi. I said last episode that Shaka had taken away the rights of all the chiefs to execute anyone. Well, there was one exception, and it was Mapita. But what the Lord Shaka giveth, he taketh away. Mapita did not have an Isigodlo, a regiment of unmarried women. He also did not become an Isukulu, the central elders of the Zulu kingdom. I bring up Mapita for a number of reasons. One is to highlight how the constant debate about who was a proper Zulu and who wasn't confused all in sundry, who came into contact with the Zulus. Was he royal chiefly blood or not? No, say some. Yes, say others. The second reason Mapita deserves his own story is that he survived Shaka, who was going to die very soon, and lived all the way to Chachuaia's reign in the 1870s. That's a very long innings indeed, considering we're talking about the period 1820 to 1821 at this point. And the Zulu praises sung about Mapita include this verse, Stabber that cannot be denied, he who rolls back the mountains so that the sun appears, fierce piercer of the stomach, jackal, that escaped the trap when others had been caught the previous day. Apparently he was both an excellent warrior and a cunning diplomat, according to the traditional tales. Sharka would visit Mampita's homestead only once during his entire reign, avoiding the northeastern regions, and Sharker, of course, preferred to roam further south. And it's further north that things were beginning to move. By mid-1821, Delagoa Bay had slumped into what you'd call a mini-depression, worsened by reports of local raiding parties. On the 5th of July, 1821, the governor of Delagoa Bay, Cetano de Costa Matosho, reported that the people known as the Tembe, living inland from the harbour, had been attacked by a huge force numbering thousands. The attackers were trying to seize their necklaces and bracelets and bangles, the copper goods mainly. The incident is very important for a number of reasons the size of the attacking party, for example, and their origin. The Tembe said they appeared to be the people of Chief Inhamboza, living near St. Lucia Bay. Inhambozi was the name used as the Imtetwa, and we believe that it could have been an impi led by Dingezwayo's son, Sombeli. He left the area dominated by Shaka at about this time, according to oral tradition. There's another possibility. Governor Matosho lived on the coast and never travelled inland. He relied on reports from third parties that were often just plain wrong. They could have been linked to Zwides and Dwandwe, now operating not far away along the headwaters of the Komati River, or the Soshangani, or Zwangandabas people. Whomever they were, however, it was what they represented that is most important. Disorder. One thing we know for sure, the attackers were not Zulu. By now, Zwede's other chieftain, than Duanwe had set up shop in this part of southern Africa, and by 1821, he was raiding for both ivory and slaves. Slaving was not intrinsic to this region. It was happening further northeast, as you know, but slaves did form parts of various forms of exchange around Delagoa Bay. Zwangandaba was based along the lower Limpopo Valley region, and at times travelled north to Enambani, where he sold slaves to Portuguese and Arab traders. According to records kept by Delagoa Bay officials, there were around 13,000 slaves exported in 1820, 21, and 22, but by 1823, this dipped to almost nothing. By 1823, the Tembe people around Delagoa Bay were no longer functioning as a social unit. They had fractured and had taken to hiding in the woods, with famine the main reason, along with violent incursions by what or who could have been the entwined we must focus now on three vital people, and what happened to them shook southern Africa to its core. And this is no exaggeration. First was Mzilikazi's Komalo people, second Mpangazita's Hlubi, and third Matawani's Nguani. You've already heard how crucial Mzilikazi is to our story. In some ways, he's far more important than Shaka himself, and by the time we've ended our discussions about him, perhaps you'll agree. Mzilikazi's role in southern Africa lasted far longer than Shaka's. He covered far more territory, thousands of kilometers in the end. He founded a new nation from scratch called the Ndebele of Zimbabwe, and their ferocious warriors were going to clash with all sorts of people, not least the Boers and the British. Right now, the people of the Kamalo had been living in small groups sandwiched between the Zulu and the Ndwandwe, along the headwaters of the white Mfalosi. They claimed the same origin as both. They were Ntungwa. They were rolled down in a grain basket by the force that had created the Nguni of this region as the oral stories go. They then moved to the Ntumbeni Mountains, overlooking the south bank of the Mkuzi River, and Mzilikazi had married into the house of Zwide, of the Ndwandwe, first. There are two stories about what happened between Shaka and Mzilikazi. First, that he was defeated by the Zulu, then became an Induna in Shaka's army. Then Shaka tried to have him killed in a fit of jealousy, and he escaped. The second part of the story is true, Shaka tried to lure him to a feast at Bulawayo near Ishoi, but he refused and made off in the night instead. There is a praise song about Mzilagazi that goes, White spotted one who was seen by his face in a crowd who refused to eat the leg at Bulawayo, The leg of the cow, of course. We know that Zwide killed Mzilagazi's father, Mashobani, then kept his son in bondage. Mzilikatsi managed to escape from Zwide when Shaka defeated the Ndwandwe chief at the Battle of mkhla The Kamalo and Mzilikatsi then escaped from both Shaka and Zwide and by all accounts they didn't go quietly. They proceeded to plunder the country as they moved northwest, taking all the cattle they could find as they fled. The Nchilinga people, for example, have a story about how Mzilikatsi pitched up one day and stole all their cattle. They went to Shaka for help, but by the time he sent his impi, The Kamalu chief and his people were nowhere to be found. Their days of traveling across southern Africa, a kind of itinerant transhuman paramilitary lifestyle had begun. The people that now run in the millions and live in western Zimbabwe began their exodus in 1821 as a small group of 300 from Zululand. What happened immediately after they left Zululand is shrouded in mystery, but we think they moved slowly towards the upper Vaal River between 1821 and 1825 and were attacked in 1822 and 23 on the way by the Ndwandwe and the Pedi people. Their oral history is full of pain and suffering, just like the Israelites. The expelled one of the Zamangeli, who was kicked out by long feet and by short ones the expelled one of the Zimangeli Mzilekazi, son of Mashobani, the wounded one, whom they stabbed with wounds, whom they tripped up with short feet and with big toes. Which all goes to show tripping up is easier if you have big toes. This movement of people around Zululand was going to nudge others further afield. What happened is called the Depatgrani or the Impatgrani. This is a theory about what happened at precisely this moment in Southern African history, where it's postulated that Shaka's immense power and violence led to the scattering of clans and tribes away from his Zulu powerhouse, which in turn disrupted other people's further afield. That people were now moving more than they had been in preceding decades or even centuries is uncontestedly true, but it's disputed, and quite virulently about why this happened. In the south, a drought that lasted for seven years had begun. Around the east coast of South Africa, pressure had risen around resources like land, water and food. The Kamalo were on the move, and so too the Nguani under their leader matuwani This group of people had been turned into the boogie men and women of South African history, so let's hear what they were up to. Matawani was based on the upper Imzindiati River on the way to modern-day Newcastle after moving away from the Mtetwa and the Ndwanwe clashes of the late 18th and early 19th century. Matawani attacked the Lhubi. One section of these people headed south the other under Mpangazita Ad the Drakensberg and then moved up the Tugela headwaters. They crossed the northern edge of the Drakensberg into the territory of the Tlokwa and faced off against its chieftainess Mtantis and her son Sikonela, who will pop up later in our tale. So the Tlokwa, by 1822, were raiding north into the Highfield, and at some point, around this time, Mpangazita of the Hlubi rolled through the western Caledon Valley, followed by Imtantisi of the Tlokwa. They were after better pasturage for the cattle and the other animals. The Nguani were also moving away from the northeast, trying to avoid conflict with Shaka, who had demanded tribute that Matawani was not prepared to give this is the core of the empetrani concept, and you can see why people have argued like cat and dog about who was to blame, who caused it, if you prefer. Many revisionists and Marxist historians in particular blame the Trekboers and the colonists, and by doing so, of course, they relegate the capacity of African people to create their own history into a second tier. The narrative is scarred by folks dreaming up reasons why Africans can't create their own empires. It's a bit like the lunatic fringe of historians who publish books about stone circles believing that aliens created them. It is telling that most of these theoreticians can't speak an African language and have never heard an oral story. Yes, some of these are full of dragons and magic and mystery, but they all tell of dislocation and movement. This happened. No, my friends, the movement of the people is etched into the consciousness of the past. The reason we discussed the Bitkhani is because people moved so far so quickly. They created instability in the northeast of southern Africa, just as there was instability in the northwest and, of course, the south. The Trekburs, the Griqua, the Kora, the motley commandos of the Orange River, the English settlers pushing into the Kaiskama area, the Amakosa pushing back, the Zulu developing their power base, all was happening right now. By the early 1820s, people were ranging widely across the highveld, which they had not done for some time. The Nguani, in particular, found themselves squeezed between various raiding parties. Matawani's name was bandied around by missionaries. The Bele and Zizi people scattered before the Nguani. Some ended up living with Amatosa, they traveled so far. These people became known as the Fingos or the Mfengu, and I know their story because the Mfengu people have told me their story. These folks ended up as far south as the Cape Colony. The Bele people also shattered. Some remained where they began their move near Vianen, close to the Sundays River. Others moved south with the Imsum Vubu Imsum rivers in today's Transkai. and a few moved northeast to live with Shaka. The Bele people were accepted by the Zulu. The reason is simple: Senzanga Kona, remember Shaka's father, Senzanga Kona's favorite wife, Bibi Kasumpisi, the beautiful, was a Bele. Her brothers were Entlela and Induvana, great warriors of the Zulu. Entlela has a whole story by himself, the most prominent of Zulu men high in the hierarchy, called the greatest of all Izinduna. He was tall and dark brown, the Zulu called him Imsundu. He had broad legs and a barrel chest. He paraded with the long tail feathers of the red-faced mouse bird and sported a blue crane feather like all the other top Izinduna. He would survive Shaka's assassination in a few years and fight for Dingon. But Matawani is still our main interest as we head into the 1822 period, living on the Upper Tugela near where Bergville is today, then moving into the Caledon Valley across the Drakensberg. So there was a wave of dislocation, a movement and exodus of people in an arc from Delagoa Bay, heading westwards to the headwaters of the Pongola River, towards them Falozi Rivers, around to the Tugela, then down towards the Mzumkulu, and that was happening between 1818 and 1823. The force pushing these people was from the east, some of this was from the Zulu, some from the drought, some from the Ndwandwe further north. Through very aggressive chiefs from Zwide, who were still alive, Ngaba, Zwangindaba and Soshangani, the Zulu, Nguani, Lamini Swazi, Pedi and Tlubi people were also jostling. The Tlubi and the Nguani moved west over the Drakensberg and plunged into the Kaledin Valley while at the same time Mzillikazis Komalo were heading towards the upper Val, not far away. The colonists were marching north from the Cape at the same time you can see what was happening. A churning that had never happened on this coast had begun. Everyone was closing in on everyone else. Shaka meanwhile, started to hear stories about white traders who landed in a well-known bay to the south, and he was curious. What did they want besides ivory, which is pretty much all they got in 1822? No slaves. Captain W. Owen of the Royal Navy would visit this area along with Delagoa Bay quite a few times between September 1822 and the end of 1825. His visits were going to set off the next phase of southern African history, as English ivory traders wanted to do a deal with Shaka, and he was happy to hear of this. He'd been trading goods northwards to Delagoa Bay, and the south appeared an untapped wilderness for both the Zulu and the English. Meanwhile, down south, veterans of the Royal African Corps, previous defenders of the frontier on behalf of the British, had been given land in the neutral zone around a place called Friedrichsberg. They were the coloured and black buffer zone between the Amakosa and the other buffer zone, the 1820 settlers. So Rufane Donkin's changes along the frontier had thrown Lord Charles Somerset's cunning plans into disarray. But things were going to improve for these settlers before they got worse. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, sale. Ali.